Welcome to the APL Next Ed Minipod, where for a few minutes each week, academic leaders share insights and perspectives on the most important issues and opportunities facing academic teams. Learn how other schools are managing and strategizing for success as your host, CEO and founder of APL Next Ed, Kathleen Gibson, gathers and connects practical seeds of knowledge and experience from her guests. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the APL Next Ed Minipod. We're talking this month with women who are at the highest levels of leadership in higher education and are asking them what we can learn from their experiences navigating their careers to these positions. Today, we have a highly accomplished and involved president of Herzing University, Renee Herzing. Welcome, Renee. Hello, Kathleen. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. We're delighted to have you um, and particularly to hear how it is that you have found your way into a presidency, but also all of the opportunities that you've had to really innovate in the space. Uh, So curious to hear about your path and what we might learn from it. So before we get started with our conversation, I'd love to share a little bit of President Herzing's bio. She comes from an amazing institution that itself is an inspiring story, Herzing University, which was founded in 1965 with only 12 students and now is serving over 7,000 students across the United States. We're excited to hear uh, how Renee helped shape that institution and the impact that it's having. Uh, Renee is a graduate of Brown University where she graduated with honors and she earned her MBA at the University of Phoenix. Renee joined Herzing in 1999 and served in several student focused positions, including the registrar, the director of missions, and the president of online campus uh, before making her way into the role of president. She launched the system's online offerings in the year 2000 and established the online campus in 2003, which now has more than 4,000 students. Uh, In addition to being active and creating tremendous impact at Herzing University, Uh, Renee is active serving in higher education advocacy and accrediting groups like the Committee of Higher Education Regional Alliance, the Board of Wisconsin Association of Independent Colleges and Universities. She's a trustee for the Boys and Girls Club of Greater Milwaukee. Uh, She has served on the Board of Directors of the Career Education and Colleges University Organization and was chair of its Grassroots Committee. In addition, she serves uh, in a national education idea sharing group, which I can't wait to hear all about. And then she's highly active in her business community as well. She's a member of the Young Presidents Organization. She has held a lot of leadership positions within YPO. She's a member of the Greater Milwaukee Committee and on the steering committee of Milwaukee Women, Inc. and a member of Tempo Milwaukee highly accomplished, highly connected, uh, someone that I'm sure we're going to learn a lot from today. So again, thank you for being here. Uh, we're just delighted to hear your story. Well, thank you. Where, where would you like me to start? So I think one of the ways that I'd love to start is to have you uh, tell the Herzing story. I think it's such an incredible story. And then we'll move to uh, hearing your story and how you sort of moved your way through the ranks and among the ranks of leadership positions in Herzing and then made your way into the presidency. So, you know, sure. let's, let's hear about Herzing and, and hear sure. your story too. Sure. Well, like you say, we have a relatively unique story in higher education, though there's more I would call family schools and people know about, you know, mm-hmm. before there were land grant colleges and everything, the way to 
get educated was often from somebody running a teaching institution or a nursing institution, or Ben Franklin had a printing press school. I mean, this was how people got educated back in the pioneering days. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, we are a family, we're a we were a family established and run institution for 50 years. And it is the story of my parents, Henry and Suzanne Herzing. Uh, my father was an engineer and went through the Navy and my mother was a school teacher. So it sounds logical that they started a technical college, but when they tell you it's much more serendipitous, uh, my father saw an ad in the paper about starting a computer training school, which remember computers in 65, this was right. something very, very new and unusual. And uh, my mother and he went to an interview about a franchise for this type of training institute and we're on uh, the corner in New York City across from the Empire State Building. And I don't know, like quite flipped a coin, but sort of said do or do not do and decided to do it. And the opportunity was in Milwaukee. And uh, my mother's from New York. My father was from Northern Illinois, so not too far, but it was pretty much sight unseen. Come to Milwaukee, pack up your stuff, 25 wow. and 28 wow. years old and just went for it. So um, that's the story of the starting. And it was very, but it, that's, I think, kept in our culture of being very, very close to the students. Mm -hmm. They were literally the two people founders were, you know, uh, they did get an instructor, but they were very close to everything with the students. These are the first 12 students. These are the next 20 students. So that stayed very well in our culture that one there's, we are responsible as the leaders for every single student and being very, very close to the students the whole way. Um, so things evolved over 50 years. I mean, acquired different locations. Um, we actually still have a family system up in Canada, mm -hmm. uh, not related anymore to the university, but for a while we had sites in Canada and the US. So things just evolved over time, more programs, more locations, higher levels of degrees, especially in the US. Um, until the 50th anniversary, right before that, actually, Canon US for more accreditation purposes separated into two systems. Mm -hmm. And then the US system, for many reasons, for sustainability, affordability for students, and great partnering with our communities, we converted to a nonprofit format. And it was just the mission of the family has always been great impact and decided that was the best vehicle to continue to have great impact. And so that's, as you say, about 7,000 students, 10 locations programs in healthcare, including nursing, business, IT, uh, public safety. And we go up through the master's level in nursing and business at this time and are, have more plans to do more. That is such a cool story. I love your explanation of these types of schools because you see them, we come across them. And I've always sort of wondered what was the impetus, right? Even in the state I live in, in Indiana, we had Ball State University, which when I was growing up was a was a teacher's college. Yes. It was a public school, but it didn't have the same sort of comprehensiveness that it has today. Uh, and then we often see schools like Herzing that really were the calling and the passion of a group of founders, almost like a business, uh, very much like a business, but also with, with a uh, sort of a philanthropic and also civic sort of mission or civic sort of reason for existence or reason for, for being. So it's fascinating to hear your story and the story of Herzing and, and how it came into being. So you literally grew up, if you will, in, in this business. I did in the sense of, um, there were a couple of times I remember as a kid going in and helping, you know, fill 
uh, folders with information for students or doing packages or helping count things or, or do, you know, some help around for fun and probably didn't still the idea of work a little bit and earn your money and spend it wisely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, some responsibility education, which is always what good parents do. So that was a great exposure. I would say, though, transition to my own story that I was more what I call a boomerang kid. I've seen this a lot in any type of family enterprises where often the kids in the family go off and do their own thing. But eventually, because they grew up in it, because they're often like their parents, I'm very similar to probably both my parents, but people especially say my father, that you, you go off and you find your own thing and your own thing can end up being exactly what your parents were doing. And it, it's not that you just were born into it and stayed with it. It's just, you discover that you have a lot of similarities with those people who raised you. So I did go off in, uh, in college. I'd already started student teaching. I went down the hill in Providence and taught English as a second language to people who wanted to be U.S. citizens. So I always had a passion for people want to be better. People want to have improve their lives. How can we help people improve their lives? Went to Europe and did teaching there, also English and uh, administrative of English language schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in that time decided, well, you know, teaching's great and I love being with people, but I'd rather do some more on the administrative side. So thus I went and did my MBA. And the reason I did it online was because I was in Europe and that was the most convenient way to get a U.S. degree at the time. It was just starting. That was in 97 when I started my online degree there. And then, you know, things evolved and then it was, okay, why don't I come back? I mean, I want to be in higher ed. I I loved adult learning. I was teaching adults Mm -hmm. in Europe after the first year or two, I was all adult learning. So it just got to be kind of funny. You know, my dad looking at me going like, oh, so you're interested in being an administration (laughs) in adult learning institution. You know, I might know somebody who does something in that area. So, you know, came back at that time, married with my husband and we joined the institution and, you know, took progressive roles from there, but I just fell in love with it. I just love adult learning. I'm very passionate about kids, thus work with the boys and girls club and everything, but I've decided the best way to help kids is to give them a stable household, get their parents solid footing. You can do lots of programs and that all's helpful. It's all great. But the best thing people need is to go home to a stable house and to stable parents and parents with great jobs. And so I, I think every day we're helping parents offer a better life for their kids. I'm doing the best thing I can do for kids. Yeah. I mean, you were so far ahead of the curve in terms of understanding the importance of that. You know, when we look at even now schools sort of recognizing finally, uh, kind of post COVID that having, uh, remote delivery and also, really serving adult learners in their communities and in their states, you know, is vital to their sustainability as an institution, but you were way ahead of this. I mean, do you think that that came out of, or was shaped by the experiences you had doing TESOL and doing things in, in Europe with adult learners and even having your own online learning experience, earning your MBA? Certainly for my own. First I'd heart back to our history that the real innovation was what my parents started of, it was adult learning and that whole movement of everybody who was into adult learning, you know, or have always been into adult learning, as I said, teaching colleges and nursing colleges, but you know, it was built always with convenience for students. So that became online, but it started with having, you know, small convenient locations. We're going to be where you are bringing the education to people rather than building something and saying, change your lives to come here. Because when you serve adults, they can't change a lot. 
you know, yeah. they have jobs, they have kids, they're hardwired and you have to bring the education to them. So I think we already had that whole mentality, the convenience of it, call and we'll do things over the phone and we'll do whatever we can to make this convenient for you. However, you know, online took that to a whole nother level. Now there was so much you could do and serve people in such a convenient way. And certainly my experience is what really helped because I was teaching, I was teaching at different companies all over the Munich area at that time and, you know, had a crazy schedule and it would constantly be changing. And I, I just said online could fill in like the cracks of any part of a day. You know, you could do it at night. You could do it during the day. You could do it when you had a half an hour break. And I really noticed things. And I was studying in Germany for a U.S. degree. So it really opened up everything from time and space. And I just realized, yes, this is absolutely going to be uh, the way of the future. And when I started at Herzing in 99, we started talking about it. And even before that, my father had called me and said, what do you think about this online thing? I said, oh, yes, it's, it's big and it's going to be really important. So certainly it's nothing like experiencing it yourself to understand the role it's going to play and how, um, you know, how that, what, what that'll mean to adult learners. Fantastic. Uh, as you, as you think about when you came back to Herzing and you took different roles with the institution, how important was that sort of in your formation and in even uh, how you might prioritize and navigate leading the institution now? I, I have a, I, comes to mind, I have a friend whose parents were in the grocery business and her father's sort of MO was that anyone who was going to even move into upper management in the and the grocery store had to start by being a bagger yes. and, and then a cashier and, and sort of move their Stock way. the shelves. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And so and how, how important do you think, you know, having a role as a registrar and, and doing some of the more student facing leadership roles, how, how did that impact or does that continue to impact your leading today? I think it's incredibly important. I mean, first of all, for my own education, I was coming in, I didn't know a lot about the institution. So like the registrar role is fantastic. I would not say that's my skill set. <laughs> we all know it takes a special person. Yeah, to I'm good maybe job. Rubik's cube, but not you know filing and detailed processes and you know being really consistent and repeatable processes. Probably not my natural mo. But I learned so much all about our curriculum, all about how students go through it. You know, options of how you can make it more flexible. Uh, you know, thinking of online and how that can make it more flexible. So, I mean, everything is the courses you're offering and the programs you're offering. So it was a great tour of all that. And then admissions to work with students. Why do they come to us? Why do they want to do this? You know, so I did. And then online kind of was overall when I started that up was over all the areas. So learning more about, you know, the process through financial aid and then how you continue them and the educational process, which I'd seen from it, from the registrar's perspective, but then, you know, overall and delivery of education and quality through career services. So I just think it's very important to know the students. I mean, the, as I started, my, my parents knew the students because they were right there for them. I really worked a lot with students directly and I still try to grab any opportunity I can when I'm at campuses, you know, they're like, where's Renee? And it's like, oh, she's in that classroom. I mean, I just, whoop. <laughs> you know, my natural uh, proclivity is just to go into a classroom or walk down the hall and find people in a study or break area and talk to them because that's who you're serving. And you need to know, the only way to know whether you're doing that right is to ask and to get in touch and, and just listen to people and hear what's resonating with them, what's not. And what, you know, what suggestions do they have? 
And that's the fun of it too, uh, is, is serving students better and better every day. Yeah. How, I mean, you've talked a little bit about the importance of being connected with students of sort of understanding the core operations by having experienced those roles. How, how has that shaped your priorities today? uh, As you, as you look toward leading Herzing, those conversations with students, what are they, what are you hearing that is sort of guiding you uh, as you, as you move the mission of the institution forward? I think it's just increasing levels of service. I mean, the world is obviously in the last year and a half and more gotten so complex and people need more services even outside of the classroom. And we've always embraced that, but I think we've increased our commitment to mental health counseling, to a student crisis grant, to just realizing you can't go to school if other things in your life aren't working. And we've always known that, but I we've just leaned more into what are the resources we can bring to bear to help people with things outside of the classroom. So that's the biggest one I'd say during the pandemic. Uh, Otherwise, again, continuing to make, where are the roadblocks that prevent students from continuing to going to school in the first place or continuing their journey? How do you eliminate those? Um, Often in any institution, the more you go on and on, you do things that are convenient and make sense for your own processes, but you need to keep going back into the student chair and going, okay, it may may help our lives. Is it helping their lives? Right. And you have to continually go through that and take some, some, unintentional roadblocks out of the way. You didn't mean them to be roadblocks, but they end up for a student feeling that way. So I think it's continually to review your processes and um, again, your programs delivering and what students want. And then how do you help them even outside of the classroom in areas that probably you don't think traditionally a college has the direct responsibility for, but you have a whole student you're educating and you have to embrace the whole student. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that's something, if there is a silver lining to the last year and a half, maybe we're learning as a culture that the people we connect with in employment contacts and families and service industry, whether that's restaurants or retail, that we're all human beings and that we all have certain basic needs as human beings, which, you know, brings to mind, again, just the inspiring mindset that you have to look at the student as a whole person. I remember hearing at a conference a couple of years ago, a young woman who was starting a new enterprise related to hunger and students and the statistics, and I don't have them off the top of my head, they were staggering the number of students that were hungry and so, or living in their cars. And so, you know, again, to your point, you are hardly going to have academic success and achievement when students' basic needs aren't being met. And so I think this mindset is is really key. And I think institutions like Herzing that are focused on students and their well-being are going to be the, the institutions that students gravitate to because you know the, the world's a, a more and more difficult place to navigate, as you've suggested. Especially for adult learners. There's just so much And when you compound that with kids, many kids weren't in school, you know, so they made people home with their children. And so it it just adults have, um, you know, it's very, very uh, uh, huge juggling act that they're going through. And so it's 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 part of the mission to help them with all the things they have in the air. And it just seems like life's adding more to it. Right. Um, Right. And, you know, we're we've we've a campus in New Orleans. 
You know, oh, you put a hurricane yeah. on top of it. Yeah. Uh, we, we're yeah. now trying to find our students and oh, uh, so far so good uh, yeah, in terms good. of people being okay. But it's uh, now we we're looking at how long will people not have even power and internet right. to attend right. online. So it just right. seems like the, right. the challenges keep coming. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and the more that the world is that way, the more I think institutions have to embrace how do we become the safe harbor that you can come to. And uh, there's storms out there literally and figuratively. Yeah. And yeah. how do you be the place that they can keep coming back yeah. to and at least dock for a little while yeah. and refuel, or they know this is a place they can come to, to rest, uh, to get counsel and just to, to get both emotional, uh, strength and, and then just other practical things they need. It's, it's in everybody's best interest. For sure. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about when you think about how to serve the student as a whole person what kinds of things this is, how this relates to using technology, how it uses, how it relates to training your own faculty and staff to be, uh, you know, something more than, you know, just the deliverer of content. So really having your, your whole team sort of understand that you're serving a person who may be dealing with a lot of challenges and, and even policies. What sort of policies do you have in place that reflect this mission and this goal to, to serve the, the well-being of the student? So I think it starts, everything starts with your core values mm -hmm. and then finding people <clears throat> who believe in those core values. Uh, so we, we came up with a price of success model that's professionalism, respect, integrity, caring, and engagement and caring's right in there. We got that actually from employers, what they want to hire in employees. Mm -hmm. uh, so we felt we need to model this for our students. So it started with us modeling those and caring is the big one in there, respect and caring that we're sure we're treating everyone with respect and a lot of caring. So first you have to kind of say that, and then you have to find people who really mean it. Uh, and really come because they want to be in education because they want to be caring. They, this is their way to express caring for others uh, and respect. I know everybody respect means I know I believe everybody can do it. Everyone's got something in them that they could be better. That's respect and caring as I'm going to give it my all to nurture that. <clears throat> so you have to have people on the ship <laughs> who believe in where you're going and how okay. you're doing it uh, because it's very hard to change people's innate philosophies. So I think we right. state it and we attract people who love that. And mm -hmm. I just can't say enough about our faculty and how much they go over and beyond to know the students' names, know what's going on in their lives. You know, I get endless notes from students about our faculty and all our staff, especially missions and registration yeah. and student yeah. services and everyone who touches yeah. them along the way, just stories yeah. of like, wow, I can't believe they knew this was going on. And this is what they did for me. Um, because we really do attract people and thank people and encourage people who, uh, again, brace the student for their whole being and everything going on. And so, and that happens in our campuses where they see them face-to-face -face and also online where right. it is a little trickier because it's a different modality and you don't get the face-to-face -face interaction, but there's lots of tools. Again, if you say you can bring tools to bear, Zoom certainly is one that makes it better than just a phone call. Um, there's always, uh, more technology to be leveraged, but technology is the means it's not the heart, right? right. <laughs> you have to start with the heart and any tool is just that it's just a tool and it, it, it can only be leveraged if the right mission is there and the right intent and the right heart. And so I feel the, yeah. it's the feeling and the mission of the people with us that really makes it happen. 
Yeah, I, I um, you know, obviously with what we do at APL, one of the things that we're really focused on is faculty. And, you know, I've been a long time believer after 16 years of teaching that the data is correct, that faculty have the greatest single impact on student success. And the data show that it goes even beyond their experience in the acquiring their education. It goes into their, you know, even five years into their career. And so I, I think that the other thing that may be coming out of the experiences we've all had over the last year and a half or two years has been a reignited focus on faculty and ensuring that they have the tools and resources and support and compassion and empathy for them as human beings and as, you know, sort of the frontline workers in higher education. And it's been exciting to see sort of a new respect and a new, and I'm sure that this has gone on for a long time that you you didn't have those sorts of issues in terms of making sure that your faculty were resourced. And, but many institutions, I think, kind of lost their way in this regard. And they didn't, you know, they didn't understand that you know, these people had to be in li- aligned with your mission. These people had to have the resources they needed. These people needed to be equipped with skills to do something more than just, again, delivering content. You know, as we look at the value proposition of higher education in the future, content's free and ubiquitous on the internet now. So yes, what is the role of you, faculty? Right. And my, my provost, Kitty Kautzer, is fantastic at this. And she says, you know, you're not a purveyor of content, you're right. a facilitator of learning. That's right. And that's a very different perspective of I'm facilitating you as a student in your journey and your, your evolution. That's right. I'm not just trying to dump something into your head because, you know, learning is evolving as an individual and uh, absorbing, applying, reflecting on yourself, improving your behaviors, which is why we have that price of success model. It's not just about learning content, our employers want people to show up with certain behaviors. That's right. They certainly want some certain skills and basic knowledge, but they also want a certain behavior. They certainly want certain behaviors, the behaviors that are going to fit their culture, treat their clients or customers well, and, and nurture and fit into a certain environment that they're creating. So really behaviors and that understanding is so important. And that's why we believe we have to start by modeling those. That's right. I, I think you're you're spot on there. Um, as it relates to this idea of care in particular, and I'm certainly no geneticist or evolutionary biologist or psychologist, but I wonder if you think that women are particularly well-suited for leading institutions, not just higher education institutions, but leading in all sorts of business contexts because we've been cultured to be caring, do you think we're going to see a higher or a greater premium placed on, you know, being able to be that empathetic organ or that organization that, that has as its mission or leads with empathy and caring? I certainly think the latter, absolutely, that this is the dawn or not the dawn, but this is the age for empathetic leaders. You know, the pandemic has required that of everybody, um, communication and empathy. Uh, communication, compassion, if we want to keep it all C's and right. comprehensive, meaning uh, approaching your team members as whole individuals would be mm-hmm. the three C's mm-hmm. that I would go to of again, communication. They say those again, so we can all remember that communication. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they say in real estate, it's location, location, location and leadership. Yeah. It's communication, 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 right. uh, compassion, 
mm-hmm. what you're saying, empathy, you know, just understanding the person and really feeling for that. And then compre- I call it comprehensiveness, just understanding you're dealing with a whole person. You've right. got so right. many, maybe it's complexity too. You've got so much right. complexity in people and in problems, and you have to have a very comprehensive view. The, there's no quick fixes that are right. good fixes um, right. or sustainable fixes. And the way through um, issues today is takes needs a very comprehensive and complex approach. And uh, it's it's very nuanced in your decision making and what you're coming up with with solutions. And you have to take a lot of people along on that journey. So I definitely think those type of leaders are winning. I think I'll stay away from whether the gender or one gender. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, there are so many men on my team that are more caring and empathetic than and express it better than I do. So Okay. Okay. All right. So we don't want to make those you, gender generalizations. I'm, I'm pretty, you know, there could be trends who knows, but but yeah. I just say at the individual level, you certainly can't generalize that way yeah. because uh, yeah. I, I was raised with a very kind of direct style. Um, and uh, sometimes I go to somebody else on my team uh, and there's many men who are like, you will say this better than I will. How do I say this? <laughs> right. You right. have a finer touch than I do. So I think it depends on the individual, but I definitely think those are the skills. And I think men have it in it. Like you say, right. just society has yeah. maybe always said that's what they want from male leaders or any leaders. We have had a a long time where I think we've said leaders come up, they show they're strong, they're, you know, perfect, they're impenetrable, they're never afraid. And now it's really flipped to come up, show you're vulnerable, show people you're human. Right. People like to know you've got the same kind of problems. So you're relatable. Certainly, you know, show confidence and show a direction, but take people along, be open, listen to them. You don't have to have all the answers. So there has been a real change in, I I think, the acceptance of that leaders. And I think men as well as women will have more opportunity to show up that way as leaders, because now it is what um, is being praised as successful and is showing success rather than being frowned upon. Yeah. Well, and I think as we look at the employment situation, not that there isn't uh, a good, you know, sort of a a good apart from sustainability and business outcomes um, that require this, right? I mean, as human beings, we should, I guess, aspire to this anyway. But certainly, I think we're living in a time when people have choices where they're going to spend their careers and how they're going to spend them. And absolutely, you know, having an environment where people can lead with their heart and they can serve students and and that's what's promoted and that's what's valued, I think will make a huge difference in the future. Again, my prediction is particularly in the faculty role where these are the you know, these are the people who are the day in day out providers of the service that we absolutely that institutions provide and, and making sure that those folks are equipped uh, to and resourced and supported in carrying out a mission that is centered and focused around caring and compassion and the whole student in an organization that values them as a whole person, I think is just going to be key to, to uh, success in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. I always say, you know, 
the rest of us are just kind of stage managers. <laughs> you know, the, the people who spend a significant amount of time with the students and make the real Delta with them are the faculty members. That's right. who they spend hours and hours and get their coaching and their interaction from. Again, there's a lot of supportive staff who I've heard from students were helpful too along the way. Right. <clears throat> but those faculty members are really their mentors and their coaches. And we, we call them coaches. We put coaches on shirts for them. And we really, you know, that, that it's that, overall coaching and inspiring the student, not just being corrective on content. Yeah. And I do think you attract people that role are very proud of it. And the students do remember them their whole lives. They're absolutely yeah. convinced of that. I mean, I always, whenever I'm talking about faculty, always ask the group I'm talking to, to think about the two or three that they can immediately identify. And whenever I say it, you can see the light bulb go. I mean, all of us have several of those people in our lives. And I think institutions that recognize that and leadership that values that and rewards that, I think, you know, that's just a win, win, win situation. And it sounds like you guys are, are right on task and right on mission as it relates to, again, something that should be intuitive and that you would think would have been this way all along. But, you know, at many institutions, I think we started to value things that were different than this uh, in faculty and, and, uh, you know, put them in a difficult position, but, you know, hopefully again, the experiences of the last couple of years have shed some light on how this, this needs to change. You've done a lot outside of the institution to cultivate your leadership skills, to, to network with other people, to, uh, to lead and to serve outside of the institution. Can you talk to us a little bit about why you did that, what you learned from those experiences, how valuable they were to you sort of navigating your way into the presidency? Well, I'd say the first, you know, most important one was inside was certainly my father, mm -hmm. the founder. And I'd say the best thing you can do for learning is to find great leaders and watch them. <laughs> you know, I think we talk about mentorship and that sounds like a big commitment from the other side. So I, my advice to people, just make it easy, just get near leaders and observe them mm -hmm. because that doesn't ask a lot of them, but you can learn so much from that. And so I started by moved literally my desk into my father's office when I uh, went from kind of all the student facing roles to more an executive vice president or starting working for a central administration. And I just got to watch him in real time, real leadership mm -hmm. <laughs> happening, live action. And that's a great way to learn. And I've done that externally as well. When you're on boards, you observe other people, how they handle situations, how they make comments, how they facilitate a discussion. Um, you know, Young Presidents Organization is a fabulous organization, which is outside of education, because I always believe you want to be in industry circles and you want to be in very broad circles, because right. we could certainly uh, benefit in higher education from watching what other uh, sectors and, and uh, industries have done. And there, many of them technologically and just in terms of service mindset, you know, are far, have, have adopted things a lot faster than higher education has. So uh, being in Young Presidents Organization is uh, giving me exposure to, uh, you know, presence across all sorts of industries and uh, puts you in conversations with them and where you can ask questions and confidentially share, you know, best practices and all sorts of things. And again, just observing people, getting to know people, hearing their stories. It's amazingly inspiring and humbling because <laughs> as much as you think you've done a fair amount, I tell you, I can name people who've done 
10 times what I've done. I mean, just it's amazing what they are doing and to be able to watch them and, and listen to them and, and interact with them has been very, very inspiring again, and, and great leader, uh, great, great learning opportunity. Also, there's very just practical things you see that are happening in parallel universes. Mm -hmm. So to say that you can apply and you can learn from, you see, this is going to be coming or here's things they're doing that I can apply to education. So I just think it makes you more well-rounded and comprehensive in how you um, see things, see the environment outside of you and see solutions that you can bring to bear. Yeah, that is so smart. I uh, once read a book, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago that talked about how important it is even in reading that we, we read different fields and that we look at different uh, sources and perspectives on the things that are happening in the world. So, you know, picking up a, a magazine on science and an economic and foreign policy and, and seeing, and I started doing this and I, you can see these themes sort of woven together and really have, I think a good idea for, where you need to apply what you've learned related to these themes in your own industry or in your own uh, leadership practice or you know in the in your own business, um, it seems like creating this sort of opportunity for having and hearing and learning diverse perspectives allows you to you know not only take practical things away from them but begin to, to see the connections between and among. And, you know, I'm wondering in, in, in your context, as you've been outside in these organizations, has it helped drive maybe program development or understandings of, you know, what kinds of delivery might be on the horizon and, and those sorts of things? Yeah, it certainly um, gives a perspective from any of the employers we serve. So we certainly serve our students, but they want employment. Right. So we have to be talking to the employers about what they want and be building the bridge in the right direction, so to say. So it has helped a lot with the per employer perspective mm -hmm. on what they're looking for in future hires. It also has led to some direct, some direct partnerships or mm -hmm. um, other connections where we are working with employers to create workforce through creative programs, right on site, blending online with hands-on experiences and helping them build their own workforce. And uh, may lead to other, you know, very practical training offerings that we offer in the future. Because you just hear how, how, what employers are saying, this is where our pain point is. And we do want to unite. It's, it's so frustrating to see students or prospective employees out there saying, mm -hmm. I want to do more with my life. And then you have employers over here saying, right. I really need good people. And there's this gap. And right. so I am very passionate about any way to bring those two sides together mm -hmm. and be a solution vehicle, because it's great, obviously, for our employers. And most important, it's great for the people in our society. They want to show up for meaningful work. They want to take care of their families. And it's so frustrating to see oh my gosh, there's willing people and there's, a, there's a need over here. And how do we put yeah. that together? And education hasn't always been a direct vehicle for that. It hasn't, it hasn't been clear how you bring those together. And we try to be as practical about that and do work with some employers, you know, directly like children's hospital and advocate Aurora that say, okay, we've got somebody here. Let's build yeah. a direct bridge to the next job. Um, because we really, want those people to advance in the most practical, concrete right. sense they can. And it's great for the employers who then get a, a tried and true employee advancing with yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody wins in, in those scenarios. Right. 
as we, as we kind of draw to a close here, I have two remaining questions. One is what sort of trend or what do you see on the horizon that aspiring or current leaders you know, should be paying attention to? And then, you know, what piece of advice or what one single sort of item would you share for aspiring leaders uh, that is, you thought was vital to you finding yourself in the position you are earning the position you are in and, and being successful in that position. So, so two questions and we can take one at a time. Sure. Well, the thing to pay attention to, which I'm sure, you know, so many people would say, but I've seen it in action is really the power computing power and the power of how computing can take over tasks And I've seen some demonstrations of software and other things, and it is just incredible what's coming our way Mm -hmm. in terms of the whole automation of work. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure many leaders are aware of that, but getting closer to it and really seeing what it can do. So you understand both at an intellectual, but also kind of at a visceral level of how, how far this can go and how impactful it's going to be. It certainly made me even feel more dedicated to I've, that gap is now getting bigger and I'm going to have to find creative, more efficient, more effective ways of getting people here over here to where they're needed, because a lot of those very untrained skills are just going to be automated and it's going to happen. It's like all trends. It seems slow at first, and it will take a little longer than we think, but then it's going to hit an inflection point and it's going to go all of a sudden very quickly. So if we're not thinking about it right now as educators, all of a sudden it's going to fly up in front of us. And so we have to be thinking very hard right now on what it means for education and how we can leverage some of that in our education and how we just get better at advancing people ahead of what I see is this wave of taking these non-skilled, unskilled jobs and tasks. So that's what I'd say on that side. In terms of um, one piece of advice, I mean, go back to observation. The biggest thing I'd say is we all have to steer our own ships. I mean, if it's to women or any leaders, it's being proactive and just steering your own ship, take a hold of your own development. Um, Again, I I moved my desk into my father's office. I didn't wait for him to ask me. It wouldn't have happened. (laughs) He was a doer like I am and he was just doing his thing. So I had to move my desk in. I've had to asked to join organizations. I've had to take those things on. And I look back, if there's one thing I wish I'd been, I've been more proactive. So I just think we can create our own development. We can create our own opportunities and you need to be, uh, don't be shy. Yeah. You, you, you get what you ask for. Yeah. And have confidence, right? I mean, the world yes, have confidence, lean you have in, something lean to offer. Is, You're yeah. here because you have something valuable yeah. to offer and everybody has something different to offer. Yeah. And the world's not, as good a place as it could be if you're not showing up fully. And so I think you just have to do it. And I especially think that women get are too afraid of failure. If that's one thing I would say, I've just observed is women wait to be perfect and women wait again, generally not all women, but there's just a little bit more of this. Yeah. You know, it's, you can't admit you made a mistake and it's terrible to fail where guys are like, ah, whatever rolls kind of rolls off their back. If there's one thing, you know, that I would say would be great for anyone to adopt who wants to lead is just it's okay. You're not, if you're not, as we always say, if you're not feeling, you're not trying hard enough. So just embracing that more, you can say it easily, but really doing it and applying that is difficult, but it's just to, if you be proactive, it's going to happen and just keep moving and you'll move on to the next thing and then you'll be successful and it'll all be part of the story. So yeah, uh, I think just being in charge of your and steering your own ship and go as far as you can go. 
those are two great pieces of advice. I think, you know, looking at how AI is going to, and automation is going to impact the world, I think is huge. And then you're right. I think, um, there may be men and women who are afraid and who, who don't have the confidence, but really, again, giving, giving themselves opportunities to make the life that they want to have. I think if there's any time and any place in which this has been more possible than ever, it's now. And so I love that idea of, and I, yeah. I add to that, don't wait for the confidence. Like right. everybody's afraid. <laughs> right. Right. I know we didn't talk about it, but I love rock bands and I have a family rock band, but I love studying rockumentaries. Those people are nervous when they go out on the stage. Yeah. They, it looks easy, but they're nervous before they perform. Even very you know, seasoned performers get nervous before they go out there. I get nervous before I give speeches, even though right. I've given them a lot of time and in generally enjoy giving speeches. Right. Right. So I, I don't think you can wait for the confidence. I'd put That's action right. before confidence. Act, yeah. even when you're scared, even when you know, don't, don't wait and don't think everyone else there is out there is confidence. They're just faking it better. And so, you know, go ahead and act and the action will give you confidence. So I, I just be proactive and go ahead and do it. And if it, if it feels scary, then really do it. Cause it's probably the right thing then. And you yeah. need to push yourself to do it. Yeah. Maybe you should coin a, a phrase, just do it. <laughs> Yeah, I wish I'd had. I wish I'd been on that one, right? <laughs> oh goodness! Certainly goodness. live, certainly live by it. So um, yeah, I had approached some people networking the other day, and I thought, oh, and I just made myself do it. I stalked them out of the room, said, "Here's who I am," and 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 that's still takes me going. Okay, come on, go do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how you. And they turned into great conversations. But that's you have to always be pushing yourself to yeah. take action. And, and don't wait for the confidence to come. The confidence comes after the action. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's great advice. Well, Renee, this has been tremendous. I, I'm sure all the listeners and I myself have learned a lot from very practical things and, and being inspired by the story of your university and then hearing just terrific, really tangible advice that we can apply as, as leaders. This has been incredible. Thank you so much for your time. A big thank you, too, to our listeners for tuning in. If this is your first week listening to APL Next Ed Minipod, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and iHeartRadio. We release a new episode each week in two formats, a podcast and a video, so you're welcome to learn from our guests in either format. Please visit aplnexted.com slash podcast to access the full library of Minipod episodes. Read more about Renee's education and experience and bio and learn a little more about herzing in the guest notes. And until next week, uh, be well and take care. Renee, thank you again. Tremendous conversation. Uh, So grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Kathleen and the whole APL team. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to today's guest and thank you to you, our listeners. You can find out more about our guest in the show notes. We hope the APL Next Ed Minipod is a helpful resource to you and your teams. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your colleagues. The APL Next Ed Minipod is brought to you by APL Next Ed, the leading academic operations platform helping academic teams connect and collaborate in one place. To learn more about how APL Next Ed is helping schools streamline academic operations, visit aplnexted.com.